Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Hidden Noise. I'm Abby Sandler. And I'm Rebecca Siegel. And we're feeling really good about releasing episode 13 of this wild experiment on the spookiest day of the year. Not to mention, this week's go-see is very fitting for the occasion. Today we'll be starting off with Like Life, Sculpture, Color, and the Body at the Met Breuer. Then we'll be joined by Peter Russo, director of Triple Canopy. But before Peter joins us, we're going to tell you a little bit about one of the most fascinating, strange, and head-scratching exhibitions you will ever see at any location of the Met. We're also going to try and be polite about it. We'll see how successful we are on that front. Because we have so many opinions, and frankly, I don't really even know where to begin with this show, we're going to just start from the top. The premise of the exhibition is the figure, sculpture in figurative form from the earliest Greek and Roman works in the Metz collection to works from the Renaissance to contemporary sculptures made in the last five to ten years by big names in the gallery circuit. The exhibition is on the third and fourth floors of the Met Breuer. But since the sign in the elevator that says start on the fourth floor is so small they might as well have written it in Braille, we're here to tell you start on the fourth floor. It's not the end of the world either way, but we think you'll regret doing this show in the reverse order. Yeah, we've got a lot of caveats to this, but don't <laughs> get us wrong. We want you to go see this show. There are some very important moments in it. There are also just a lot of super questionable ones. <laughs> so get to the fourth floor galleries and make a left to enter the exhibition. You're going to see a big introductory wall text. Don't read it. For this show, we are going to insist that you just skip all the wall text because they're just really, really bad. Yeah, they don't make any more sense of the show and you're not going to learn anything, so don't bother. After you make it past this first hiccup, which, to be honest, we almost didn't, you'll enter a large gallery with a handful of ancient and neoclassical sculptures alongside contemporary ones by artists such as Charles Ray and Fred Wilson. There's a pretty clear dialogue happening. Old white bodies, contemporary white bodies. But there's no deeper underpinning here. For example, there didn't seem to be any reasoning behind which ancient sculptures were chosen. They might as well have sent Abby down to the Met storage and had her pick out half a dozen pieces <laughs> to put in the show. This is what I meant when we said we weren't going to be particularly nice. I will say, though, I was pleasantly surprised by how great sculpture from 100 AD looked in the Met Breuer. That building's tough with those dark gray floors and the honeycomb ceiling, and those statues on their plinths really held up. But then there are the scrims. Ah, yes. In this first gallery and throughout the exhibition, they divide up the space using floor-to-ceiling flimsy white scrims, as opposed to building temporary walls or coming up with one of another 600 solutions. We did not like this. It looked like a last-minute fix. It didn't look deliberate enough, and it was just bad. You could argue that maybe it complemented the fixed solidity of the sculptures, of the bodies. But for me, all it did was point out a gaping flaw in this exhibition. The entire show is about bodies, flesh, and form. And at no point are those bodies properly situated in space. Regardless, you'll wander through the rest of the fourth floor trying to make sense of what you're looking at, trying to figure out why you're looking at one body next to another, and I promise you won't. You'll laugh at your own bewilderment like we did. It'll be fun. There are some really gnarly things in there and others that are beyond beautiful. A chronic painting literally stole Rebecca's heart. <laughs> it did. And enjoy the absurdity of some of the juxtapositions. Relish in the display of some works often not seen. And then walk down to the third floor, still wondering what the hell is going on, but here things will get better. The first gallery on the third floor actually has a quite coherent theme. In fact, I'd say the themes are much more focused on the third floor, so the show becomes a little easier to follow. 
You go from dolls and mannequins to flesh to dead people. All of my highlights, and I believe some of yours, were also on the third floor. So we'll give credit where credit is due. There are fantastic objects in here despite my recurring issue with the entire show, which is that it was so clear why most of the contemporary works were chosen and so wildly unclear why certain older works were chosen. For example, in what I will refer to as the Jesus Corridor, (laughs) there are four abstracted Fontana crucifixion sculptures and then a giant German crucifixion panel. Why they wouldn't just find an Italian one to pair it with, it just felt incredibly arbitrary. They definitely missed some cues, but... It was on this floor that I saw a lot of interesting dialogue. Groupings of certain works and artists that you would not have thought about together. Right. So as much as we think you shouldn't read the wall text, do read the individual works labels. That's where the real conversation is. Abs, what was your highlight? (laughs) Well, honestly, the full-size dead people room was nuts to me. I, I guess they weren't all dead, but there were at least three coffins, so dead people room. The show really came together for me in that gallery because I had joked to Rebecca that the exhibition kind of just felt like the wax museum trying to do an art show. And then right there before my eyes was a sleeping beauty on a chaise long breathing on loan from none other than Madame Tussauds. It was just, I don't know, it was the icing on the cake. You never cease to surprise me because of <laughs> course you loved the final room in the show. I was going to say the head cast in Frozen Blood, but that seemed excessive. Anyways, what was your highlight? For me, Kader Atiyah's film, which was a study of different bodily forms from eyes and faces to noses across ages and cultures, beautifully edited together. It's playing in a corner of the third floor, and I think it speaks to one of the most important distinctions between contemporary practices and older ones. Whose body is on view? Who has the right to look at it? How can we create a sense of representation that is both fair and artistic? And naturally, none of that was expressed explicitly, and actually very little of the work in the show discusses the idea of broadening the human form. Sure, but the show can't do everything. Yes, that is definitely true. It cannot do everything. And in many ways, this show in particular satisfies the conceit of the Met Breuer. The whole reason that the Met wanted to expand into this space was to connect the museum's contemporary collection to their vast, practically unparalleled holdings in works before 1900. Which is an extremely different conceit from our guest today for The Even Eight, who is committed exclusively to the contemporary in just about every single form. Yes, on that note, let's move beyond sculpture and toward magazines, publishing, performance, film, books, and the other works by Triple Canopy. Let's welcome Peter Russo. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Peter is the director of Triple Canopy, and I want to ask him to tell our audience a little bit about what Triple Canopy is. Sure. Um, So Triple Canopy is a magazine. Um, That's both the mission and the proposition. Um, We work with artists, writers, scholars over long periods of time to produce digital works of art, literature, live events, performances, screenings, lectures, exhibitions, paperbacks, all of this together sort of making up the magazine. And each issue of the magazine is themed? Yeah, we tend not to use the word theme. You know, I think we have A call to arms. A call to arms is a good one. We wanted to get away from this sort of traditional model of here's the theme issue, here are all the experts you need to know on a given subject. Instead, we wanted the magazine to create a conversation, to be a product of that conversation. So the editors spend months, if not years, 
developing a prompt, uh, a set of questions, key concerns, and then we turn that over to artists and writers and say, hey, you know, we think your work is great and maybe has something to contribute um, to this conversation. And commissioning them is a way of performing that act of research. Um, and sometimes we reach conclusions, sometimes uh, more often than not, uh, more questions, but it's a more engaged uh, kind of publishing model and also importantly unfurls over time. Um, so an issue for us lasts anywhere from one to three years. <laughs> three years has been too long, we realize now in <laughs> retrospect. Um, we're just wrapping up now issues that first launched in 2014 wow. um, and beginning a couple of new ones. So it's an exciting moment. For something that's as experimental in medium as you guys are and has had so many collaborators and people who have been involved at both early and sort of mid-career points in their practice, it is a testament to you and your team that this is actually the 10th anniversary of Triple Canopy. Thank you. Thank you. It's kind of incredible. Are you so proud? I am. I am. I, I think the you know one of the most difficult challenges is to do something experimental, but also find support for it in real time, to not just be a curious artifact that people look back and, you know, at 30 years, 20 years, whatever, and say, wasn't this prescient? Uh, I think we made certain demands of ourselves and certainly of our contributors and spent endless hours out there making an argument to supporters, individuals, foundations, that this is a kind of work that needs to happen at this moment. And also a kind of work that isn't happening anywhere else. I mean, there are very few models that I can think of where even within institutions like museums or even outside of them, wherein this level of experimentation and hands-on effort with artists is being made. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think at the core of that is a kind of discussion about collective authorship. Contemporary art still largely rewards the individual artist, um, the single author, you know, there's this desire to ascribe greatness, you know, which may be well deserved, but I think things get muddier and more challenging um, when we look at culture as a collective conversation and don't hide that, but in fact, highlight it. You know, again, I think there are many reasons, very good reasons to do someone's fantastic first solo exhibition or publish their first great novel, but we decided there are or other kinds of venues that would benefit culture now and at this time. And to your credit, I mean, Triple Canopy has become an incredible community. There's a space where performances happen, and there is an annual sort of big benefit that is probably the largest one I've ever been to. It's traditionally <laughs> in Jingfang, the sort of football field Chinese restaurant. But on, on the occasion of your 10th anniversary, I imagine you have something a little bit more special in mind. For our fall benefit? Yeah. We do. We do. It's still under wraps, so I can't go into it um, too much now. You know, first, I think, you know, your, your praise is um, grateful for that. I think part of what we've tried to do with the magazine since day one is assert that the cultural economy we're entering into is actually an essential part of the story, which means that fundraising is, or rather can't be an afterthought. It needs to also be mission-driven. And I think, you know, one sees that in that fall benefit in particular, where, you know, we're not honoring the most popular artists, we're not, you know, honoring the the wealthiest patrons. And in fact, oftentimes we're introducing people to someone um, they may have never read or whose work they may have never seen. So that's really essential. And I think why that evening in particular feels unique and feels special and like a moment of respite among uh, a very busy fall schedule. 
Well, while the details are a little bit under wraps for this 10th anniversary, um, I will say that everybody should know that tickets will be available later this month, and we will we will also highlight that at some point. But in the meantime, we will start with the even eight. So I have to ask the most awkward question of all of these, which is, what is the most underrated show or cultural event happening in New York right now? Definitely not the most awkward question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try to we'll make it more awkward. We'll get there. I'll say, I gotta say first, these are these questions were so challenging for me. Um, <laughs> Happy it's to help. exciting to see everyone responds to it differently. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I just I don't think quite in these same terms. Um, it was an interesting experiment for me. I mean, I'm someone who very much believes in great artworks, not great artists, uh, and vice versa. You know, this idea that everyone's invited. I'd mentioned, I, actually, the first thing I did was forward this list of questions to Lumi Tan, who, in addition to being an incredible curator and arts educator, also was talked into becoming my wife. And um, <laughs> she responded, wow, I'm going to learn so much about you. <laughs> Years of marriage later. Yeah. Okay. So for most underrated show performance, installation, et cetera, I actually landed on the name Constance DeJong who is um, just an incredible writer, an incredible storyteller, performer, artist, who is having something of a moment right now. Most recently, Performance at the Kitchen in collaboration with Tony Orsler called Relatives, um, which was first performed at ICA Boston in 1987, I believe, which essentially, I won't give it away in case others have a chance to see it, but entails a kind of dialogue with the screen. Movies, television, video games. It's just incredible the kind of uh, work she was doing at that moment. And it's just now, I think, coming back into view and is really exciting and really being embraced by a new generation. And now we get to ask the awkward question is, what do you think the most overrated show happening in New York is right now? <laughs> well, uh, Lumi's response was actually, this should be an easy question for you because you hate everything. <laughs> so what are we um, complaining about? <laughs> yeah, which is, it's not actually true. Um, and, and she proceeded to recount all the trends I complain about, whether it's crystals and exhibitions or houseplants or slide projectors. <laughs> um, so what's the most overrated show? I don't know. I think there are just so many to choose from. <laughs> I like, you know what? No one's given us that answer. Yeah, I that's like, pretty good. Really? I like that okay, attitude. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's my positive mental attitude right there. Um, <laughs> is there an exciting recent development in New York's cultural landscape that you'd like to talk about? Because I think that you have a sort of much broader perspective on this than probably many of our guests. Sure. I'm going to answer in two parts and at very different scales. I, I think there's an incredible resurgence of activism in downtown New York artists, gallerists, small business owners banding together to work within and with communities, particularly in Chinatown, Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. Groups like Chinatown Art Brigade, Art Against Displacement. There's a lot of conversation happening right now, and it's exhilarating and, and overdue, frankly. My second answer to that question has to do with a nascent organization called Powerhouse Workshop. This is going to be a 200,000 square foot industrial fabrication center opening in Gowanus, uh, designed by Herzog and Demeron, which is decidedly putting fabrication, the production of artwork at the forefront, privileging that over exhibition, recognizing that that's a kind of engagement that is lacking for artists in New York right now. Um, it's a super exciting project. Full disclosure, I've had the great fortune of 
of advising Katie Dixon, Anika Selhorst, and the other leaders of the organization there on the project. But I think it's absolutely going to change the landscape. And it's hugely utopian, ambitious. They're deeply invested in thinking about New York's economy, manufacturing, all these big, big, big picture issues um, that are there in the background all the time, and I think will be um, welcomed by many. To make those resources available for artists in New York will be sort of a game changer and to have it be sort of upheld by something a permanent space with permanent resources will be not minimal yeah absolutely and you know there's a deeper conversation there about democratizing access to fabrication services skills techniques you know that's it's a sort of rarefied field and expertise um, which is also to say largely white largely male dominated and that's something they're also looking to change and on a less community driven What is the most important book you've read or film you've watched recently? So yeah, important. (laughs) Or life changing in some way. Most people we have to pick a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And also, most people have done things that are by no stretch of the imagination important. (laughs) So I'm going to answer by describing the book I'm reading now, which happens to be uh, Tina Brown's Vanity Fair Diaries. Mm, um, love. <laughs> which, it's a deeply indulgent read. I, um, you know, uh, make no mistake about it. But it's also incredible, an incredible kind of like window in a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, the politics of publication, the role of the editor. It's, it's, it's begun to feel essential and comforting to yeah. me, particularly at this moment when Triple Canopy is undergoing so much change. You're like, I can relate to these problems. <laughs> <laughs> there are also some moments in the book where she's talking about fonts and you're, you know, as somebody who's had and to you're do like, font yes. studies, you know, you're, you're sort of, you have a different level of appreciation for it. Yeah, so. totally. And, and, you know, not that I'm nostalgic for a time period I, would, I didn't exactly work through, but there's, I don't know, this luxury of just like sitting in an office with all your spreads laid out in front of you and having a IRL dialogue with designers and editors. That's, that's the kind of place I'd like to get back to. Right. Which is totally different than how both Even and Triple Canopy work, which is predominantly over email and some sort of Dropbox Evernote game of Google Doc. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 100%. And if you could be an expert on any subject, what would it be? Okay. So my answer was botany. Botany. I um, love that. Yes. Is it because you love f- flowers? I think I love gardens. I love arboretums. I love that kind of contemplative space. Um, Do you garden? <laughs> I don't. Okay. <laughs> um, but others in my family do. And and this is also at the forefront of my mind right now. We've With been doing a little poetry. bit of research around colonial botany and Chinese exports mm. as a way to challenge notions of Americanness. This is... That's a little kind of preview of an upcoming issue and exhibition put together by Triple Canopy. I like the sound of that. And where do you go to be alone in New York? So my answer here was my car. Oh my God, great answer. I know, if very- If you have one, then yeah. Yeah, very non-New Yorker type answer. Do you love driving? I love driving. I love being alone. I mean, one of the things I love most about New York is the sort of ability to be totally anonymous, you know, immersed within a crowd. And, you know, by driving around New York, which I've almost entirely sworn off subways on the weekends. um, (laughs) Because they don't work. You can hit both the Lower East Side and Upper East Side museums uh, in one fell swoop. Where do you take someone you're trying to impress? So this is tough. For New Yorkers and non-New Yorkers, I sort of divide my answers that way. Wait, where are you from originally? I grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania in the Poconos. Okay. 90 minutes away, a world away. 
<laughs> honeymoon capital of the world, well, at least during the 50s. I was going to say, potentially not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> potentially not anymore. There are a lot of um, disappointing Speaking couples. of an older time, yeah. yes. <laughs> For New Yorkers, I said Shigura, this amazing sake bar on Church Street. It's kind of go-to place, totally understated and fantastic. And for non-New Yorkers, a lot of my non-New Yorker friends who are venturing here uh, for a weekend stay are of the straight edge or vegan variety, people mm. I've known for many, many years from back to my days in music. And I've been bringing them to ABCV, which sure. is yeah, yeah, totally amazing and right in your neck of the woods. Totally. And also one of those things where breakfast, one of the few restaurants where breakfast is the best meal. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Without a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> um, for the remainder of 2018, is there something on their radar in addition to all of the exciting things at Triple Canopy that we should know about? Sure. So two things came to mind. One is new books by Maggie Nelson, including a collection of past writings. And I know about this because her agent told me she needs to focus and not be distracted <laughs> by my requests. Um, we are hatching something, though, so I'm very excited about that. And then second, I thought of Kevin Beasley's exhibition at the Whitney uh, opening in September. For full disclosure, Kevin and I sit on another board together. So I will also uh, sort of give my full support of that, but I'm deeply biased. But that should be really excellent as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly excited about it. I think he's just such an impressive voice. And when he does a show, when he does a project, he brings everybody along with him. All his collaborators, fellow artists, musicians, uh, performers. So it's definitely something to look forward to. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for taking the time to tell our listeners a little bit about Triple Canopy and to reveal all kinds of fun things like botany and sake <laughs> bars, as well as uh, forthcoming celebrations on behalf of the organization. So thank you so much for joining us. And congrats on 10 years. Thank you. Thanks both. So big thank you to Peter Russo from Triple Canopy for joining us today. And we hope you all make it to the Met Breuer sometime in the next two weeks before we hit you with our final episode of the season. I'm Rebecca Siegel. And I'm Abby Sandler. And this is Hidden Noise. <laughs>